All right, so Romans 15, verse 14 through 21. So we talked last week about how the thematic conclusion of Romans, like we're already past that part. And so here Paul is getting into like the bookends of the letter. So if you think about like in high school or in college when you wrote essays, you would write like your thesis statement or your topic, uh, your like introduction, and then you'd write the whole body and then you'd write your conclusion. And so we've gotten through the body of the letter. The introduction is Romans 1, verses 1 through 15. So that's when he's like, this is what I'm going to say. And then he goes ahead and he says it. And now he's telling us what he said. So just like every good essay, every good letter is the same way. And here, this follows a similar pattern and similar exhortations. Actually, this section through the end of the letter is going to follow similar patterns where he's going to talk about how he's an apostle to the Gentiles. That's a key thing. How he's ambitious to go to the church in Rome, how he's been hindered from doing that, but he's ambitious to go so that he can carry his ministry to the Gentiles on and forward. And so in Paul's reminder, uh, he's going to give them primarily in this text his mission that has specifically been commissioned on him by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's going to say that this is his reason to go to Spain. Now, we don't know uh, historically if Paul ever made it to Spain. Most likely, uh, he didn't make it to Spain. He was executed in Rome uh, near the end of the book of Acts. Um, but here in this letter, we get an insight to Paul saying he's going to go to the Roman church, and he, he has an ambition to go to Spain. And that's really what he's including this letter on. He's going to get an offering that he's carrying right now to Jerusalem, and then once he goes from Jerusalem, he's going to go to Rome, collect an offering from them to fuel his mission out to those unreached people groups. And so before he's going to tell us about this mission to Spain that he wants to go and undertake, he's going to backtrack and point back to his ministry so far to the Gentile people. And he's going to recap for us, in summary, essentially the back half of the book of Acts. And you can read about all three of Paul's missionary journeys in Acts, and I'd recommend doing that because it's amazing what he was able to accomplish. And we must note, though, that Paul uh, wrote this letter to a church that he did not found, that he had never pastored, and actually that he'd never even visited. And so the question that is kind of like at the outset of the letter is, why is he, what authority does he have to write to the church in Rome to give them pretty strong exhortations here in this letter to tell them how they should live at peace with one another, right? We just made it through that section. So what, what authority does he speak under in order to be able to meet them with like that kind of intense uh, apostolic and pastoral care. But yet he still feels that he has the jurisdiction to do this. So he talks about in this section here that he's satisfied with them, that he feels that he wrote boldly, but nevertheless, he's not taking back any of what he said and he still feels like he has a right to have said it. And that's all linked to this key phrase that we're going to talk about, which is Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. That was his specific and unique commission by Christ Jesus that was unique to any other apostle. He was the first uh, apostle to the Gentiles. He's the one who paved the way for everyone else. And really in this sermon, uh, I'm not going to try to do anything like three-point sermon or five points or nine points. Uh, I really only have one point or one ambition uh, during our time here. And that is, I want you to be asking yourself this question as we go through the sermon. What is your ministry? What is your ministry? Or another way you can ask it, as Paul does later here, what is your offering that you are bringing to the Lord? And so with that question in mind, and I'll repeat it a few times, with that question in mind, uh, we're going to take a look at this passage. But I want you to know that I'm asking that question because Paul had a ministry, and we're going to read about it here. And his ministry was a specific calling by God on him to a people. Jesus 
had a ministry. It was a specific calling by God to a people to accomplish something. In fact, every single person that we read about in Scripture who's worthwhile of note, commissioned by God, they all have a purpose and a role to play. Everyone has a role to play, but those who are on God's side of history have a specific and unique role to play that is a commissioning by God. And so the challenge is that because, because you and I might not know what our ministry is, we don't know what we're running at. And we don't know where God is moving in our lives. Because Paul knew the task that he had, he was able to run at it with no regrets and run at it boldly. And if you and I know what our ministry is, we can do the same. And so that's something I want you to have in mind as we go through this text. So the first thing we're going to do is look at Paul's address to the church in Rome. And the first thing that he does is he addresses them with respect. Um, He says things like they're pursuing righteousness, they're doctrinally sound, and they are capable of making disciples. So in verse 14, we're going to see that whole section. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So the three exhortations he has are the three uh, benefits that he says that uh, is good about the church in Rome, that it's a healthy church. He says they are full of goodness, they are filled with knowledge, and they are able to instruct one another. Now, if you think about how Paul wrote to churches like those in Corinth or those in Galatia, he doesn't always have high speaking, he's not always speaking well of the church that he's writing to. In fact, most of the time he has to write to a church is because something's going very, very badly in that particular body. The church in Corinth had one who was among them who was sleeping with his mother-in-law or potentially his mother, depending on the translation. Uh, Obviously, that's an issue. Uh, The church in Galatia was struggling with Old Testament Judaizer heresies, and they thought that they had to earn through the law uh, salvation that Christ had already accomplished. But the church in Rome, he says, is doctrinally sound. And not only that, they are good, they are righteous, they aspire to be holy. And also, they are mature enough in their faith to instruct and counsel one another. Or another way to say that they are making disciples or they're able, mature enough to make disciples, which is after all the commission that all of us have. So the first thing Paul says about them is they are virtuous. He has some really strong exhortations in the book of Romans so far, but he wants them to know that he doesn't have a low opinion of them as a church. And oftentimes when you have someone who's exhorting you strongly, who's, who's pushing you into a certain lane, it's, it's easy to think that they think lowly of you. That's why they're pushing you in that direction. But Paul wants them to know that even though he's written to them boldly on some things, that he thinks very, very highly of them. And the church in Rome overall, he considers virtuous, and that the whole body is really upright and outstanding. And I want you guys to know as well that I have a high view of you. And a lot of times uh, in application or in exhortation, I think Max and I will push the envelope a little bit to make it feel a little uncomfortable. Uh, and the reason that we do that is because when we write sermons, we have one person in mind. We write sermons for those who are faithful to Christ Jesus and the calling he has placed on their life. We present the gospel, we exhort the church, but we have in mind one person in the church, those who are going to go out and be the hands and feet of Christ Jesus into the world. And so the exhortations are harsh, but it's because we know who we have in mind. And so when I put this sermon together, I was thinking of only one person who I think is the, the people who are sitting in front of me, those who are virtuous, who are upright, who are in the pursuit of a God-honoring life. And the second thing is not only is their life honoring to God overall, 
but he also says they are filled with knowledge. Another way you could read this is that they are doctrinally sound, that their teaching is sound. So unlike the church in Galatia, who is struggling with a Judaizer heresy, when he writes to the church in Rome, he doesn't have to address any of that. He has to address tertiary issues and unity issues, but he says overall their doctrine is sound. And how he would know that is in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, he talks about how their faith has been proclaimed and made known to all the regions. So even though he's not visited, who they are and what they're about travels by word of mouth over to where he's at. And so you got to think about, as a church, what do people say about us as a body? I know that there are other churches in Indianapolis, and if I ask someone who's gone to that church, or I ask someone uh, who has heard of that church, what, what, is that, what is the vibe that comes off of that church? What do people say about that church? You can tell a lot about what they believe, who they are, and what they value just by what people say about them. And so the church in Rome, he's not even been there, but he can say this about them. I think that's a really high honor. And they, they don't know perfectly doctrine, but he says they know it well enough. They are filled with knowledge. And the third uh, compliment he has towards them is that they can instruct. And what's interesting is you need uh, exhortations one and two. You need to be holy and pursuing righteousness, and you need to be knowledgeable in order to be able to instruct. If you know all doctrine, but your life is not holy, you cannot instruct. If you are holy, but you don't know anything about God and who he is and what he's about in theology, you can't instruct. But he says they have both of those and they're able to instruct. And you need both. What he's saying is they have discernment, that they can hear teaching from two different people and they can discern which one is doctrinally sound. And they can hear teaching from people who profess to be Christians and they can say that I, can, I have to compare this to scripture. I can tell if this is false teaching or not on the basis of the word of God. And I know doctrine enough, I know the Bible enough to be able to tell the difference between what is true and what is false. And that is his criteria for someone who can instruct, is that they're able to take people and lead them from falsehood and to truth, and that they themselves are able to listen and discern what is false and what is true. And that's a really high exhortation. And this is, again, what you need to be able to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, is you need to know the truth, you need to be pursuing holiness, and then once you've established those two things, you need to grab other Christians and bring them alongside of you. And that's the pattern, right? The pattern is that you're being discipled by someone, you're discipling someone else. But I think often people rush to positions of leadership in the church or positions of authority over other people who aren't actually mature enough or holy enough to be in that position. And they run into these positions of authority and they accidentally lead people astray. And so the thing you need to be aware of is that you, if you are living life on mission for God and you are making disciples, you need to have those pieces at play. You need to live a holy life that is honorable to God. Not perfectly, but you need to be pursuing righteousness. And you need to have sound doctrine. You don't need to have written systematic theology by Wayne Grudem. Okay? Not a lot of people can do that. You don't need to be like Jonathan Edwards and have written uh, all kinds of books on theology. You don't need to be um, like John Calvin when he was two years into his faith and he wrote the best treatise on theology that the Christian church has today the institutes of uh, the faith. But you do need to be pursuing theology and pursuing the truth of God. Okay? So he's going to move on from there. And after he has these three compliments of the church, he's going to move directly from that in another harsh teaching or another harsh exhortation. He says in verse 15, But on some points I have written to you very boldly, 
by way of a reminder. And now this is probably a huge sentence, uh, a huge understatement by Paul. He says he's written to them very boldly. Now he wrote to them very, very, very boldly. He wrote to them in a very big brother tone, a very uh, adult. Uh, he's, he's in uh, charge of the doctrine and teaching that's going on there. And he writes to them with this kind of authority. Paul is bold, though, not because he claims to know things or have opinions, but because he claims to stand on the truth of God and his word. And he knows that he has the gospel. And he knows that he has sound teaching. And he knows he's been commissioned by God to teach this to the world. And so he writes boldly, not of his own opinion or his own ideas, but because he has the truth of God and he's been commissioned out to go teach that truth. It's, it's the gospel. It's not his own opinion. And you and I can speak with the same boldness, not our own opinions, not our own thoughts and our own ideas, but we speak boldly what has been written in scripture and what we know to be true. So that's the first thing he says. He speaks to them very boldly. And the second thing he says is by way of reminder. Now I just want to point out this to you, point this out, is that we spent 14 chapters in Romans so far on his reminder. Okay? So he opens up the letter. He says like, I haven't been there yet. I want to go. I ambition to go to Spain. The gospel is the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes. Let me explain that real quick. And then he dives in. And we just came out of that a year and a half or so later. And so his reminder uh, is the bulk of the letter. And it's the best uh, explanation and extensive essay on the gospel that we have. It's studied by theologians even today, 2,000 years later. So way of reminder is a huge understatement by Paul. And this reminder is what we have today in Romans. But the question I, I was thinking about is why does he have to remind them? Because he just said they have doctrinal soundness and they pursue holiness. So what's he, why is he reminding them? They're virtuous, they're filled with the truth, they're able to disciple, but so is Timothy. And Paul wrote him two letters encouraging to hold fast to the faith, to endure the cross, and to teach the truth. He gets two letters, many encouragements, stand firm in the faith, hold on. And the reason he reminds them is because people tend to forget. People tend to forget all the time. There's a reason why I have lots of notes when I talk and I, when I preach and I teach to you guys. It's because I forget things. I'll forget cross-references. I have to sometimes go back and listen to my sermon from the week before to remember what I said. It's just because that's who we are. We forget things. And the gospel isn't just for lost people. You don't graduate from the gospel. So when he reminds them, he's not reminding them because he's worried they don't know it. He reminds them because that's the job of a teacher and a preacher. It's not that you don't know the truth, it's that you need to be reminded of the truth that was originally delivered to you and that you originally believed. And that's all Max and I aim to do every single week is to remind you of the truth. Not that you don't know it, but our job and our role and our commission is to go and remind you of it. And so that's the secret uh, to what we do. That's all good teaching really is, is just reminding you of the truth that you already know. I teach chemistry. If all I had to do every day when kids showed up to class is introduce to them a new topic, I would be done with my curriculum in four weeks. But I have to spend a year because I, I teach them something new, and then a week later I have to remind them about it, and then we have to study it again, and then we have to review it before the test. And you just rinse and repeat, and then by the end of the semester, you have to go back and spend a few weeks on reminding them of everything you've taught them so far, and a lot of students forget things. But that's all teaching is, is you remind people of the things you've already taught them. And then he continues uh, on this exhortation. He says that the reason he's written boldly and the reason he's reminding them of these things 
is because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. The grace here refers to his commissioning as an apostle to the Gentiles. He was not an apostle to the Gentiles. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. And he, he has this special authority, this unique gift to write to the church in Rome, although he's never been there, he's never pastored them, because he has a special role to play as the apostle to the Gentiles. And the church in Rome was composed primarily of Gentile believers. You see, what happened in Rome is initially the gospel was traveled up to Rome and was established. But then at some point in time, the Roman government actually kicked all the Jews out of the city and so all that was left was Jew, uh, Gentile Christians in Rome. And then eventually the Jews were allowed back in. And so that's why they have all that disunity that's going on. But primarily the makeup of the church is Gentile. And so because it's primarily Gentile and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, he feels that he has the authority to write this letter to this church, even though he's never been there, even though he's never pastored. So he considers this authority with a very high regard. And the apostles had a special authority that was given by them to teach and to preach. And it's worth noting that we no longer have this office in the church. We had the apostles who worked with Jesus, were commissioned directly by him. We still have apostles, like a, a lowercase a sense apostles, because apostles in the New Testament is a word that just means the sent ones. So we still have apostles. Today we usually refer to them as missionaries, primarily. But we don't have the office of apostles in the sense that Paul was an apostle, or in the sense that Peter was an apostle, or in the sense that James was an apostle. So, and the reason that they have this special authority, this unique gift, is because the apostles' job was to deliver to us sound doctrine and teaching that we have now in the New Testament that composes the scriptures. And the canon of scripture is closed. It's already been written. It's already been compiled. And in it, we have the teachings of the apostles. But when they were going out into that New Testament world, in that first century uh, world in Rome, there was no scripture. There was no playbook for this. And so God bestowed a unique gift upon some of them to empower them with the Holy Spirit, to have them accompanied by signs, miracles, and wonders so that they came with the authority of God, and then to teach and to preach. And Paul was given the same commissioning as Jesus stopped him on the road to Damascus, personally commissioned him out. And before he goes and teaches and preaches anything, he actually goes back to Jerusalem to check with the original 12 apostles to make sure that what he's teaching is the same gospel that they have. He goes on his first missionary journey, and then he comes back and spends another period of time with the apostles to confirm that the message he's teaching is the same that they have. And so the apostles considered their message to be, uh, to be guarded very highly. And there are all kinds of crazy miracles you can read about in Acts and all kinds of ways in which the Spirit was moving to primarily point to the fact that they carried with them the power of God and the authority of God to teach and to say these things. And then afterwards, their letters and their writings were compiled, and their teachings were compiled, and now we have them in Scripture. So the office of apostle we don't have anymore, but we have the truth of what they were teaching. And this is why we as a church place a very high value on expository preaching. The reason Paul speaks boldly is because he speaks what God has delivered to him. And the reason that you guys gather together for church and you have to listen to me or to Forrest or to Max or to Andrew is not because I'm saying anything of note, or Max is saying anything of note, but it's because the Bible has said things of note. And so when I get up here and teach and I preach and I talk, if I can't point it to you in scripture, and I can't say this is where I'm getting it from, this is why I believe this, 
then you should not listen to me because my opinions aren't of note. They carry no authority in the, in the Paul sense. He writes and he has to protect his own authority and he performed miracles. I don't do miracles. I don't have that authority. <laughs> but I have authority in as much as I preach and teach the word that God has in this book. And so when we preach, we are going to exegete the text. Now, a lot of people will push back and say, well, uh, Jesus didn't actually preach expository in his ministry. And that's actually true. He would just like walk around and he would see something and he would say, this is like the kingdom of heaven in this way. And he would deliver a parable. And then he would kind of be hanging around and the Pharisees would challenge him on something and he would challenge them back with a parable. So he wasn't doing expository preaching. So a lot of people will say that, well, we don't have to do it anymore because that's not actually what Jesus modeled for us when he preached. The first thing is that Jesus was God. So he didn't have to double check what he was saying or thinking because he was God, 100% God. I'm not. So I have to double check what I'm saying. And I have the words of God here, but Jesus was the word of God. And the second thing is his ministry and his parables and all these miracles and signs and wonders that he carries out was primarily to fulfill, as we read last week, the promises of God, which was those messianic prophecies that are all throughout the Old Testament. So the reason his ministry looked the way it did was because primarily he was fulfilling the things that had already been predicted. And so we don't mirror Jesus's ministry because we don't have to fulfill those prophecies because Jesus did that stuff. So we deliver the words of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, not in the way that Jesus did because we're not Jesus, but in the way that we are able by exegeting the text. And so we comb over the word and we seek the truth and we go verse by verse and sometimes line by line. And sometimes we get like a phrase and we stop there for a few weeks. And that's all okay because in this text is the truth of God and it has the power to change and to transform lives. And I have no authority, but God's word has authority. And so that's why we do this. We preach in an expository fashion. And there's a big, strong case to be made for why that is probably the most doctrinally sound way to teach and to preach. And then he continues in verse 16. He says, But because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Where have you heard that language before of the offering that is sanctified and delivered up? Well, we just read about it in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's where we hear that language before. And so this priestly language, this offering language, Paul is drawing from this analogy that he's already laid in the text. And he's going to draw it out to that actually the Gentiles as a whole are his offering to the Lord. Not only is his body a living sacrifice, but also he as a priest on behalf of the Gentiles is offering them up as his spiritual worship to God. But Paul does not see himself as a priest. He sees himself as a type of priest. He says in the priestly service or the priest-like service. He's not a priest. And he doesn't think of himself as a priest because we don't have priests. Priests in the Old Testament were intermediaries between people and God. And we have one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. And in Revelation 1.6, he has made us a kingdom of priests to God. We are all priests. We don't need a mediator, an intercessor between us and God because we have one in heaven, Jesus. He sits on the right hand of God. 
So we don't need priests. That office is no longer there. No one is a priest anymore. In the Levitical priest system, they would sacrifice spotless animals in order to please the Lord and to atone for the sins of the community. Paul, in a similar way, offers up the Gentiles as his spotless or perfect offering to God in order to please him. So he draws upon this language. Now what's interesting is the Gentiles are only acceptable as a spotless offering because of the guaranteed work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify them. In the Old Testament, you could not offer anything but a spotless sacrifice to God. And in the same way, you can't offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God with all kinds of spots and blemishes. So how is it that we're able to be holy and acceptable offerings? How is Paul able to claim that the Gentile people as a whole, those who are called by God, how are they able to be spotless sacrifices to the Lord? It's only because they have been washed by the blood of Christ and by the Spirit of God to be presented to him as holy and pleasing. He has sanctified them. Jesus washes them clean. He stands before God with his righteousness. And all God sees is his righteousness. He sees the spotless lamb on us. And that's why we are able to be holy sacrifices to God is because we have been washed. Not because of what we're doing. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on God and what he's doing. So there comes that question again. What is your offering to God? Because Paul was convinced of what his offering was. It was his whole life's work, his whole ministry was the Gentile people to reach them and to present them as an offering to God, holy and pleasing. So what are you doing? What are you doing to bring those who are lost into the family and into the presence of God? And what are you doing in your life that is going to advance the kingdom of God so that you, when you stand before God one day, you have an offering for him? Because Paul had an offering ready for God. And he's actually in a moment about to boast about the offering that he has. But you and I need to consider heavily what do we have to boast in as our offering to the Lord? Because he is God and he is worthy of worship. And so we better bring him an offering. And so in verse 17, he's going to continue. And he says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. What's interesting here is that Paul is about to say something crazy, which is that he's, go, he's about to boast. And he says that I boast in my work for God, but why is he able to boast in his work? For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Paul doesn't see himself as the one who is driving the engine of change in his ministry. He sees himself as an instrument or a tool that is used by God for this specific ministry, but he doesn't see himself as of any note. In fact, he calls himself the chief of sinners in other parts of his writings. And we know that he saw the Holy Spirit as instrumental to his ministry because in other verses, like in verse 15 in this section, he says, by the grace given to me by God. And then he says in verse 16 that I can present them as an offering because they've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So all of his ministry is completely dependent on God and God alone moving in and through him. And the success of Paul's ministry is due entirely to the, divinely to the divine enablement that God has given him. And Paul is an instrument of God. And so it is true with us today that the success of any ministry is dependent on the divine enablement of God. And you and I can labor and labor and labor and work and work and work, but unless Christ builds his church, 
we labor in vain. Those who build the house build it in vain unless the Lord built it. As it says in Psalm 127, verse 1. And for Ruah Church, this is why we spend time in prayer. Every Sunday we meet before church to pray. And the reason we do that is because we're convinced that we could slave away week after week, year after year, and accomplish nothing unless the Lord is building his church. And Paul saw this as true of his ministry, which was quite successful. And so we should be no different than Paul. And we should see our ministry primarily as being enabled by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so when you labor and you work in the morning, you need to reach to God in prayer for your job, for your day-to-day life. Because the productivity and all the tips and tricks in the world out there, they're not going to do anything for you. Because unless the Lord builds the work and unless the Lord establishes that, it will fail. And so we are not like the unbelievers who labor and labor and labor and work and work and work. Without God, we do nothing. And so we plead to God and then we work and then we plead to God and we work. And he says that the reason he works and all these things, he's going to continue in verse 18. He says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and by deed and by the power of signs and wonders and by the power of the Spirit of God. So he brings the Gentiles into obedience, into ministry, into faith by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders and by the power of the Spirit of God. So he says that the Holy Spirit is present in his ministry in all of these different ways. And the first way in which he says it's present is by word and by deed. And so his actions and his preaching, his word and his deed, are the presence of the Holy Spirit in his work. And then he says by power of signs and wonders, Paul performs all kinds of miracles. At one point he gets stranded on an island, bitten by a poisonous snake, and then he survives. And then the people try to worship him, and he uses that as his platform to go preach the gospel to that local people. He does all kinds of crazy signs and wonders. Peter does the same thing. Peter raises people from the dead and things like that. And he says all of this is because his ministry is accompanied by the moving of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so just like he just said, the Holy Spirit has to work and establish his ministry, he's going to move forward and say that the Holy Spirit did this by word and deed, by signs and wonders, and then he, just in case you missed it, by the power of the Spirit of God. It is God who is at work in his ministry to accomplish all of these things. And the, to bring the Gentiles to obedience, that in itself is a miracle. If you think about who the Gentile people were, they were pagans. They worshipped their own gods, a polytheistic system. They considered whatever they thought and whatever reasoning they had to be the most worthwhile thing. And then it is a Jewish God who is under the enslavement of the Roman people who comes up and is crucified by Rome, killed by Rome, And then it is that person's ministry and his apostles who go and evangelize to all the Gentiles. And so you think about this. The Roman people killed just a Jewish common criminal on a cross, and that's all that the Gentiles know about him. And then all these people come out a few days later, and then they start preaching about this guy who was crucified. They're they're saying he's raised from the dead, which the Gentiles don't even believe in. And then somehow Christianity takes off, and it goes to all kinds of cities and all kinds of places. And on the day of Pentecost, we have thousands of people who are converted and baptized. And then from there, the Gentiles are evangelized to by those people. And so to bring the Gentile people to obedience, it's one thing for the Jews to be brought to obedience. They were waiting for the Messiah for thousands of years. But it's another thing entirely for the Gentiles to come. 
because they weren't waiting for any Messiah. In fact, they were, as far as they knew, the pinnacle of humanity at that moment. They'd conquered everything in sight. And yet they too were brought to obedience under the king. By word and by deed, the preaching of the word and the actions of Paul to serve people and to love one another. By the moving of signs and wonders and miracles. And by the power of the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is present in both the ordinary and the extraordinary. He's present in both the word and deed, the everyday actions of our lives. And he's present in the extraordinary, in the signs and the wonders. When that person you know is healed from cancer after people have prayed for them. The Holy Spirit moves there just as much as he does in your every day-to-day life. And Paul was an apostle, just like Moses, and he was uniquely entrusted with the power of signs and wonders. You see, today we don't have that same apostolic authority. So we don't have like one person walking around who's like raising people from the dead and commissioning out all these people and speaking in tongues and doing all these things that Paul was consistently doing in his ministry. Not that those things don't necessarily happen anymore. Not that the Holy Spirit isn't necessarily moving. But the apostle uniquely was gifted in the same way that Moses was uniquely gifted in the Old Testament to perform miracles. It's not like every person who was present in the kingdom and who was following God in the Israelite camp was doing signs and wonders. But Moses was. He was uniquely entrusted to do so. And if you go throughout salvation history in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha are two notable exceptions to an otherwise pretty bland period in history. And so if all you're looking for is signs and wonders and miraculous gifts, you have to really go to just the pinpoints of the Old Testament where that's occurring. And then in things like the book of Ruth and the book of Esther, you might miss how God is moving in and through those things. And if in 1 Samuel, all you're doing is waiting for the signs and wonders, David doesn't perform any miracles. So what are we to think? That, that God isn't moving unless there's miracles coming? That's not true because he's present in the ordinary and the extraordinary. And so today, we also pursue the ordinary works to carry out the kingdom. Because signs and wonders serve only one purpose in the New Testament and in the Old, and that is to primarily bring glory to God and to advance his kingdom. And so if the signs and wonders that you see today don't do that, and they are sought as an ends and to themselves, something to be sought after and worshipped, then that is idolatry. And that's probably not what we're talking about in the New Testament. And there's all kinds of people who struggle with this, but I want you to know that if the sign and wonder is in and of itself to be sought as a high gift and something to be looked after and idolized, it is not doing what the New Testament gift was. The New Testament gift was there to advance the kingdom of God, to bring the authority of God to the people, and to ultimately point back to God. You see, Paul survives that snake bite, and they start to worship him as God, and he says, no, 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 not me, because the sign and wonder doesn't point to me. It points to God. And let me tell you about that God. And I don't see a lot of that necessarily today. A lot of people are making a lot of money off of all kinds of things that Paul didn't take any credit for. So it's something to be considerate of. And he's going to continue then uh, in the back half of verse 19. Why is he performing these signs and wonders? Why is this by the power of the Holy Spirit? He says that so from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now this wording at the beginning of the sentence, it says from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum. That's some really interesting phrasing. And so it doesn't mean like he was traveling from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And if you actually look at his New Testament missionary journeys in any of the three, he doesn't even follow that pattern. None of them actually start in Jerusalem necessarily. 
So he's not saying that his own personal missionary journeys are from Jerusalem to Illyricum. But what he's talking about is actually something that mirrors, and this is really cool, in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 10, we get this genealogy of Noah. And the genealogy of Noah is such that the people landed in a certain point, and they expand out radially from that point in Genesis chapter 10. And in the same way, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the commission is to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And then Paul says that he's fulfilled his ministry from Jerusalem and all the way around radially out to Illyricum. And he's going to seek to expand this circle even further by going to Spain. So he's not saying that he's traveled to specific locations and all this stuff. He's saying that the gospel is doing what Christ said it would do that he has fulfilled his ministry radially out from Jerusalem, and that just as the initial people who populated the earth spread out from Jerusalem, so too the gospel is going to go from Jerusalem and out to the rest of the world in the same way that Jesus predicted it would, which is a really cool statement, that he's saying that he had actually fulfilled the thing that Jesus said was going to happen in his New Testament commission. And this word, I have fulfilled the ministry, brings a lot of questions with it. And so we're going to spend some time trying to figure out what he means by fulfilled. Because that's a pretty strong word. And there's a lot of translations and ways you could read this in which you kind of don't do that word enough credit. It's a really strong word. I have fulfilled. I have completed. I have accomplished the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So the question is then, if he's fulfilled it, what was the purpose of the ministry? Because at this point in time, all Paul has to show for all this work that he's done is a handful of churches, not all of them healthy, and Christ has not been proclaimed to every single person in even the region he's just mentioned. Even in the cities that he went to, not every single person was converted. So what then is the ministry of the gospel of Christ? What's Paul saying he accomplished here? The purpose of the ministry is to plant a church and to proclaim the gospel. That's it. That is fulfilling the ministry. Not everyone in that region was converted. So when Paul says he fulfilled the ministry, he's not saying every single person was brought to salvation because that, that, that's not the ministry. There's Roman slavery going on in this moment in time and all kinds of discrimination going against people who aren't Roman citizens. And even in this region, that's happening. And Paul says, I have fulfilled the ministry. So he can't be talking about social injustice. And he can't be talking about transforming culture because there's the predominant culture at that day is still pagan worship. It's still temple idolatry. It's still all kinds of uh, cheating and scamming and all kinds of loose sexual relations and worship at the temple of Diana. And so culture hasn't been transformed, so that can't be the mission. They're not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to be planted as a battleground, as an outpost in a hostile location and to proclaim the gospel in that location. The church is not an agent of social change. It's not an agent of cultural transformation. The church proclaims the gospel and in doing so fulfills its ministry. And when it grows big enough, it sends people off to go plant more churches in even more hostile locations. And so it continues. And so when Paul says he has fulfilled his ministry, he means he's fulfilled the ministry that he's been commissioned with, which is not to end Roman slavery, which is not to right all society's wrongs, which is not to even change the culture of his day. By fulfilling his ministry and us in our church, by fulfilling our ministry, we seek to do only one thing, which is to make the name of Jesus worshiped by as many people as we can in the most hostile places and to go all over the world and in all the places in which Christ has not been named and to go do that exact same thing that Paul says. The church 
is existing to establish battle lines in a culture where it doesn't belong in order to do direct battle with the forces of darkness. That's what we do. And Paul has planted a handful of outposts filled with a handful of faithful believers. At this point, probably mostly just house churches, gathering and passing his letters around and transcribing when they knew someone who could transcribe. But they're not meeting in a building that's massive. And they're not doing a huge production on Sunday. They're primarily scattered all throughout that city in Rome. And when this letter would have arrived, it would have probably been passed to a bunch of other people who met in small groups just like this. And he says he has fulfilled his ministry. Can the church transform culture? Absolutely. And it probably will, because if the culture is predominantly Christian and carries predominantly Christian values, the culture should change. And the, the church can feed the hungry, and it can fight injustice, and it can do all these things, but the ministry and the mission of the church, the mission of the gospel, is not linked to those things. The mission of the gospel is to go out and to proclaim Christ and to make his name great. And yes, these things are a byproduct of what can happen, and they likely should be happening at the local level within the church. But that doesn't mean our mission is to be an agent of social change and to transform culture and to sway elections and to do all these things. That's not the mission of the church. Paul didn't see his mission that way. Jesus didn't see his mission that way. And so you and I should follow their example when we carry out our mission as well. The church is primarily existing to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus tells us to do. And Paul's desire is to make disciples of all nations because he continues now at the back half of verse 20. And he says, And this and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul was a pioneer to the Gentile people. And as soon as there are too many Christians in his local region, he gets out and he goes to another spot. And he just continues this pattern all throughout his ministry. I like the way Douglas Moo said this, so I'm just going to read you a quote from his commentary on this section. He says, Like the early American pioneers who pulled up their stakes anytime they could see the smoke of another person's cabin, Paul felt crowded by too many Christians. He doesn't want to build on anyone else's foundation. He doesn't want to go to a city where Christ has already been named, where there's already a church established. He wants to go as far away from Christians and be on the front lines of the battle to win people to Christ. That's his mission. And there are those who Christ is raising up and calling to such a ministry as well within the church. And we train up and we send out people to go and carry on this ministry even today. Even today. And God still calls people to this exact ministry because there are billions of people in the world who have never even heard the name of Christ. Who don't know his gospel. And so as comfortable as it is for you and I to stay where we were raised and to live in America and to stay here, we need to consider the option that God might be calling us to go. And that is one thing I absolutely love about the Christian Missionary Alliance. That's why we're part of this denomination. If you walk through this back wall of the church over here, all you're going to see is posters of other nations and other countries, and we have missionaries in almost every single one of them. And this is not in any means a big church. And Hope, who is commissioning these people out, is not a big church. But as soon as there's enough Christians in a group to feel a little crowded, they're gone, and they're out to go proclaim the gospel. They're not there to build a bigger, bi bu bigger building. They're not there to raise 
and build these huge gigantic structures and have more people and more talent and more time and more treasure and build this social oasis of Christianity, they are there to get people trained up enough to go out and to proclaim the gospel. And that's the ambition of the Christian Missionary Alliance. That's the ambition of Rua Church is to go and to make disciples of all nations. And as soon as you realize how pressing it is and how urgent the mission is, as Paul does, you might feel that same call. And that's something you could lean into and you should lean into because Christ is not calling us to build buildings. Christ has called us to make disciples. And so Paul fulfills his ministry by making disciples. And he says that he's fulfilling his ministry on the basis of what God has already predicted to occur. And he does this in verse 21. He says, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. I want to point out to you the two phrases in this that he changes from the original quotation. So in the original quotation of Isaiah 52, 15, the word will see and will understand aren't there. Paul changes it because he is professing that will, it's going to happen. It is a definite, assured thing that those who have not heard Christ will see and those who have not heard will understand. It is a definite thing. And you can see in Romans 10 in that whole section, I think verse 15 is the quote I'm thinking about. But in Romans 10, he says, how will they, how will they hear? How will they call on the name of the Lord unless it's been named to them? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will people preach unless they are sent? And therefore, how beautiful are the feet who go and who carry forth the gospel of peace? How are they going to hear without a preacher? How are those billions of people who live in our world today going to call on the name of Jesus if they've never heard of him? God has proclaimed that the gospel would go out 1,000 years before Jesus and before Paul. That quote is out of Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15, which was compiled a thousand years before Jesus came. The Gentiles will be reached, he says in that quote. And in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 11, uh, I'm going to have you guys actually turn there with me. Acts chapter 18, verse 9 through 11. There's this really interesting thing that happens to Paul in one of his missionary journeys. I think specifically in Corinth. Acts chapter 18, verse 9. That's where we're going to be reading, but Paul goes to Corinth. He tries to evangelize the people, and essentially nothing is working. And so what he's going to do is he's like, I'm not, this isn't working. I'm going to pick up, and I'm just going to go to a different city. And he's praying, and he's seeking the Lord and his counsel on this, and the Lord goes to Paul in verse 9 and says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And we know that he established the church in Corinth. So this worked. God says to Paul, Don't be discouraged in the ministry. I have people I have already purchased who are sitting in that city waiting to hear the gospel and to be called. They are purchased by me already, Paul. I have people in that city. And Paul then, under the encouragement of people who Christ has already purchased for salvation in that city, he goes and he continues on in the mission. Because God promises that he has people in that city. 
And similarly, God has promised us that he has people of all tribes and tongues and nations who are going to worship him one day. And so we have that same promise by God that if we go to a foreign people, there are those who will call on the name of the Lord to be saved. They will because God has people in those locations waiting to call on the name of the Lord, waiting to call on his name. And so if you don't share the gospel, who's going to? If you know someone at work, or you live life and you are interacting and rubbing shoulders with people all the time, and you don't share the gospel with them, it will literally take God raising up a missionary on the other side of the world, moving into your same location, and them sharing the gospel with that person. That's what it's going to take if you don't do it. So not only do we have a ministry locally, but also we might be called to be that missionary to the other side of the world, to a place where we've never been, to a language we don't speak, Because God says that those who do not know him will know him. And he promises that. And that should weigh heavily on us. So what is that gospel that we're going to proclaim boldly? In Isaiah 52, Paul quotes that as the purpose of how something is going to be accomplished. So we're going to turn to Isaiah 52, and we're going to look at the gospel presentation as done by Isaiah a thousand years before Jesus came. Because I think that Isaiah nailed it. So we're going to be primarily in Isaiah 52 and 53, and we're going to be kind of bouncing around, but I'll show you where we're going and how the gospel is outlined in this section. And this, by the way, is a phenomenal gospel presentation. It hits all the points. If you don't know the gospel, you don't know how to share it with someone, just read this. It does the exact job for you. And so in Isaiah 52, verse 7, is going to mirror Romans chapter 10, verse 15. And this section is going to kick off God's plan of salvation for all people of all nations. So Isaiah 52, verse 7, is that quote from Romans. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings the good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. So the good news of the gospel that this person is bringing is the news of salvation. The news of salvation. People are going to be saved. And this, this news, this gospel is going to be proclaimed and someone's going to carry it. And we know that because they're walking and their feet are carrying this news out to everyone. He says, how beautiful are those feet. And then in verse 13, he's going to go and he's going to say, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted. And Jesus was high and lifted up on a cross. And he was raised, crucified, and lifted up, victorious over sin. And then in verse 15, if you keep on reading, he says, So shall he sprinkle many nations, and kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not yet been told, they shall see. And that which they have not heard, they shall understand. That's a quotation that we just read. They shall understand. They shall see. And it says in the very beginning part of verse 15, he says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And he's sprinkling them with his blood. Because when he was crucified, his blood was poured out for the people of God. And he's going to sprinkle them and cover the nations. And then if you continue in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 verse 2, he says, for he grew up before them like a young plant. That's before the Pharisees. This is Jesus. And like a root out of dry ground, And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
And Jesus was born to a carpenter's son in sketchy situations to Mary, who was supposed to be a virgin when she conceived. And he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was worthless, according to the world. And then Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, you're going to get a gospel presentation. He says in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And all like sheep, we have gone astray. Every single one of us has turned their back on God. And we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, we went astray, but we weren't punished for it. Jesus was punished for it. And Jesus stands in on our behalf to bear the sin that you and I rightly deserve. We earn it because we turn our backs on God. And Jesus lives a perfect life. He grows up before them, commissioned by God to bear the sins of the world. And the Lord lays on him the iniquity. And that's the gospel right there. But in case you missed it, in verse 7, he's going to continue and do it again. He's going to repeat the exact same thing. He, being Jesus, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was silent before Pontius Pilate, guys. He didn't rebuttal any of the accusations. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they have made his grave with the wicked, he was crucified on a criminal's cross. And with a rich man in his death, and you know that uh, Joseph of Arimathea came and later grabbed Jesus and buried him in a rich man's tomb. And although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, he faces a criminal's death. And in verse 10, it continues on, and it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. So Jesus bears our iniquities and makes us to be righteous. And if you read this, remember, this was written a thousand years before Jesus showed up on the scene, guys. A thousand years. This is some of the best evidence in the Old Testament that we have of prophecy happening to predict the coming Messiah. And Jesus fulfills all of these things to a T. And you could spend years studying just this text and all the ways in which Jesus fulfilled it. And so I wanted to point that out to you because that is a phenomenal presentation of the gospel that you and I worship week after week. And we thank God for his mercy to proclaim that gospel to us. So let's go ahead and close in prayer and then we get to worship this Lord as well. God, I thank you for your gospel. That you made a way when there was no way. And that although we did not deserve it, though we did not uh, earn your respect or earn your mercy in any way, God, 
you provided a way for us to escape the wrath of God. And Lord, you provided an atonement for our sins. You stood on our behalf in the place where we rightly deserve to stand. And Lord, you paid the ransom for us. And you ransomed us from sin. You ransomed us from hell. And you bought us as sons and daughters of the Most High King. And Lord, I just want to thank you for that today. And Lord, I want to thank you for your word and for the worship that we are about to engage in. And Lord, I pray that you would be lifted up and glorified in this moment. In your name, amen.